0: Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and friends. Today, we're gonna be talking to Luke Savage who wrote a phenomenal book on centrism. He's a a Jacobin writer, very thoughtful guy. So really looking forward to that, that should be fun. Um, But before we get to that, Crystal, I have some very, very big news. What's that? I've done it. I've brought peace to Russia and Ukraine.
1: Way to go, baby, I'm so proud uh, of you.
0: So I drafted a plan Mm -hmm. and uh, Vlad, it's over man, relax. And sit back, Zelensky, it's all good. I figured it out. I, I figured it out. <laughs> See, so, okay, in all seriousness though. Um, yeah, I did, you sent me an article the other day and it was a terrifying article. It was like, this is the trajectory that we're on in Russia and yeah. Ukraine. And they walk through it, it's very calm, it's a very sober analysis. We're on the
1: Rocks by Jeremy Shapiro. And it's, the headline is quite provocative. It's, we're on the path to nuclear war.
0: Correct. And so I read the article and by the end of it, I was like, that seems plausible. Like the way he laid it all out, the, you know, this will happen, this happens, this happens, this happens, And next thing you know, boom, there we it's are, all over. right? Yep. And so that shook me. I mean, I already knew subconsciously and instinctually, like, yeah, this is kind of where we're heading, but to have it laid out in a logical sense, yes. whole new ball game. Yeah. So after I read that, I sat there and I'm like, what the fuck can be done? Like, what can be done? And um, I thought about it long and hard went through a whole bunch of different, what if we did this, 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 and I settled on what I think is uh, you know, the least bad of all bad options okay. to get peace in Russia and Ukraine. So the reason I want to do this with you here is because you can poke holes in what I'm saying, say, hey, I don't think that makes sense or that does make sense or whatever, and I can get a sense of where, uh, where I'm at. But I am a massive masochist because everybody's going to fucking hate me for this, right? (laughs) Like the people who say, you know, poor Vladimir Putin is just being defensive. They're of course going to fucking hate this, right? right? And then the people who say literally any sort of peace deal is by definition appeasement and you're Neville Chamberlain. Right. They're going to fucking They're hate gonna me They're going to really hate you. So it's yeah. like, I'm really, I'm, I'm really shoving my dick in a waffle iron for the sake of intellectual honesty here, even though I know I'm, I'm stepping into- Sometimes that's just what you get. to do. I'm, I'm literally tap dancing on a mine- I'm break dancing on a minefield right now, but you know, that whatever is it is,
1: what it is- <laughs> Better than nuclear war though.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So anyway, um, first thing is this. Russia, withdraw. Okay, that's my peace deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'm joking, but not really, because okay. ideally you, that is what fucking right. happens, because when, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, if, if I was protesting the Iraq war, my, oh, you want a proposal? Here's my proposal. Suck my nuts. Withdraw Iraq, uh, withdraw from Iraq, America, because we were the aggressor, like get the fuck out, okay? So
1: when you say that, though, Do you mean out of Crimea, too? Do you mean out of the eastern region, even the part that they had basically, you know, de facto had independence before Russia's most recent invasion? I'm
0: largely being facetious. I'm going to get to my real proposal in a second. That wasn't the serious part, of course. Okay. But I just wanted to say that up front because I just want to be clear. They are the aggressor. They launched an illegal invasion against a country that didn't attack them, you know? Yeah. So they're to blame. That's the first point I wanted to make. And I think that's obvious, but plenty of people have brainworms, They won't even agree with that part. Right. So anyway, that's the semi-facetious answer. It'd be great if they did it, but they're not going to do it. So now to the real, uh, the real argument. Okay. Um, so the first thing, the, the four regions in Eastern Ukraine,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's Luhansk. I'm going to butcher these names. Luhansk, Donetsk, uh, Zaporiz-
1: Zaporizhia or Zaporozhia.
0: However you say it and, so and, and Kirsten taught me how to say it. Kirsten? Something like that. Kerson? Yeah. Kirsten? Okay. Those are the four regions. Now, I'm not just gonna I'm not gonna do a deal where Russia just gets those. Because then you what you're doing is you're laying the precedent of a bigger country can invade a smaller country and then just demand shit and then get it. And so that lays a precedent where any bigger country can invade any smaller country and say, this is mine now. And then, oh, you don't like that? We'll make a deal and only give me maybe 20% of what I want, right? I don't like that precedent. That's a bad precedent. Mm-hmm. But there is a fucking dispute and that's a fact. So we have to acknowledge that reality and react accordingly. So what I would say is take those four regions and they become either independent countries or it becomes one independent country. And you have UN peacekeepers in there to try to keep the peace. And so this way, what you're doing is, you're not rewarding Russia for illegally invading, right? Um, but you're also acknowledging the messy reality on the ground. And and by, and by the way, everybody hang in there because at the end of it, there's a big curveball, which I think is an important part of the of the peace deal. Okay, so that's the first thing. Okay. So it's not Russia's, but it's they're going to become independent countries with UN peacekeepers. Okay. okay. The second thing is Crimea. It's gone. I I hate to say it, but it's been gone for eight years. It's not, and that's the reason why on this particular thing, uh, you know, I would be willing to say, let's just face reality. It's been gone for eight years and there's no getting it back. Like that, that's not a thing. They're not gonna give that up.
1: Yeah, and the other thing, I'll let you finish, but just okay. to make one comment on that also is that, um, you know, before the war, people were willing to acknowledge that basically most people in Crimea or, you know, Russian ethnic and would prefer to be part of Russia. So I think that's an important reality to acknowledge as well as as the fact that you acknowledge, you know, in the eastern part of Ukraine, there was an ongoing dispute about what would happen there. So, you know, if you have those regions split off in some fashion from Ukraine, you actually have a more cohesive Ukrainian national project that is more cohesively ethnically Ukrainian.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know... I don't know if those arguments convince me that much as much as it's just, it's been gone for eight fucking years. Like, that's the that's the part that I, I can't get over. It's like, there will, there's gonna be a hard no well, in I think any it matters sort of an agreement with the from on the Russia if that's gone.
1: Yeah, I, think, and I, I think that's right. And I, I do think it matters what the people who actually live in that region, or at least lived in the region before this current war, what their wishes and aspirations are. I, I think it's something that should you, be taken into. But to a lot
0: of idiots say that about the new regions they just invaded, and I think that's total bullshit.
1: Yeah, and the other thing. I mean, obviously, like the fake elections, they just. Have. And they are fake. They're should fucking not fake. Be, They're fucking fake. Should not be considered a determinative of current public sentiment in any way. I mean, this is part of why like the legitimate aspirations of these areas have sort of been fucked over by Putin, because how can you possibly determine what their actual will is now that you've had war and you've had battles and you've had people fleeing and all of that. But anyway, those are, okay. those are my preliminary thoughts. Okay.
0: So Crimea is gone. Officially recognize it as part of Russia, which again, he, they invaded in 2014. They've been there since. Yeah, I don't like it. And honestly, I think the reason why Putin did that is because in 2012, they found natural gas in the waters off Crimea. And so I think he did it because he wanted that natural gas. So I, it's imperialist, fucked up, but it's gone, right? So, but then we get to Ukraine agrees, no joining NATO, okay? So no, no NATO in Ukraine, mm-hmm. Crimea officially... Russian, the Eastern portions of the country are not going to be Russian. They're going to be independent countries with UN uh, peacekeepers. And then what you need, of course, is Joe Biden to endorse the plan and the curveball at the end, which, uh, you know, a lot of people, I mean, everybody's going to disagree with my plan they're putting out here, but this is something that would maybe snuff it out in the crib is that (laughs) I think you should actually allow Ukrainians to vote on it Before you actually move forward and propose it, because and and here's my reasoning for that. They were illegally invaded, so when they say like, "No, we're going to defend our own country and we're not going to give an inch away," I'm sympathetic to that. So if the Ukrainian people say, if a majority of the Ukrainian people say, "No, fuck off," like we're going to keep fighting, all right, there's really nothing I could do in that scenario as an outsider.
1: I don't agree with that. And here's why. Because the only reason that they are where they are in this war is because of us. I mean, not only in terms of, but let me me finish. Okay, but I was going to say half agree. Not only in terms of the weapons that we have supplied them, in terms of the intelligence we've Supplied them, I mean it's now been reported out instrumental our intelligence was in some of the key strikes and military accomplishments of the Ukrainian military. This is not to take anything away from their like courage and savvy and all those things, but I mean also economically, like we are propping up this whole country right now. So the idea that we don't get a say, well, I think I just don't think that's true. In fact, I think the reason that the war has taken the trajectory that it's taken in large part, and I do view this as a proxy war, is because the U.S. government's policy has been, we don't want this war to end. We want this war to continue. We want to weaken Russia. And so it just was reported in the Washington Post that privately administration officials are saying we won't even nudge Ukraine to the table. We also know that, you know, Boris Johnson went to Kiev early on when there were active peace negotiations. There was a lot more prospect of actually coming to a deal early on. He went to Kiev and delivered what was very likely the U.S. and U.K. message of we do you are not allowed to strike a peace deal. So you can say, okay, they can have a vote and it's really up to them. But then there's still a decision for us. Are we going to continue to ship them arms? Are we going to continue to support them in the war effort? Because without us doing that, they're kind of dead in the water. Okay,
0: so I was going to address that. Yeah. And the answer is when Biden endorses the plan, that's a wink and a nod of like, look, if you guys don't take this that's on you, like you're sort of on your own now. Yeah, You've already given them 50 to $80 billion worth of weapons. I mean, I would've stopped after like three packages. We're on package, what, 17 or some shit like that? So Biden proposing this to, to Zelensky is, it's it sort of implied like, hey man, this is the out. Either shit or get off the pot. Yeah. So that's, so in other words, that answers your concern so there. That, but I also will yeah. say this, um, you were talking about, oh, you know, the US was blocking peace, whatever but they also have the will to fight. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They have the will to fight.
1: Let's not pretend. Like, Biden loves to pretend like, oh, this is just on the Ukrainians and we're just going to do whatever they want. Bullshit. Okay. Yeah, we have sway. Not just sway. We're determinative. Like, they don't get to this place anywhere close to it without our arms, economic support, intelligence, training over your like none of it. And again, that is not to diminish their efforts and their losses and their courage and all of that. But it's just to be real, like they're nowhere in this war without our support. So, yeah, you know, if you have the if you say, OK, you vote on it. And if you guys say no, then all right, we're out. That means effectively they're more likely say, to take it. Well, not only that, but I mean, that means effectively, if they did vote against it, your Russia is winning that war. If we follow through on truly with, you know, pulling our Actually, I military even know aid. About
0: that Because if they already have 50 to 80 billion dollars of military equipment, then they're already, you know, you could hunker down for quite a fucking while with that amount of military support. And it's no guarantee that the rest of the world follows if we stop supporting them with literally anything We've and everything they want.
1: so much. I mean, the amount that we have shipped and the amount of dollars we've used to support them economically and keep them afloat. Because remember, I mean, the economic damage that they've suffered is catastrophic. Like, to even be able to float their government, we've That's been, another reason why we've been they instrumental might in all of this. So That's another reason why even if accept. Europe is like, yo, we're still in, they're, they're still in really dire straits without I understand without
0: that. Us. Yeah. But you're, you're almost bolstering my plan here because that's another reason why they'd be like, I might not like all this. No, I I agree with that. I just,
1: that's why I I really get annoyed with, this isn't aimed at you really, I really get annoyed with um, Biden administration officials pretending like it's just hands off and we're just letting this all unfold when your plan and like logically thinking this through demonstrates how much incredible, not just sway and influence, but what like absolute direct impact we have ultimately on this war. And so when we pretend like, oh, we're not really doing much, we're just watching from afar and hoping for the best, total and utter bullshit.
0: But we are facilitating and allowing the Ukrainians to do self-defense. Maybe that's why I'm not as offended by it as you are, is because I do ultimately see it as defensive. Even though we are propping it up, we are allowing it to get, you know what I'm saying?
1: Oh, uh, listen, I totally understand the Ukrainian perspective and it's absolutely just. It's just their interest and our interests, and more importantly, the interests of the globe are not 100% aligned. And, uh, and in my view, I care a lot more about the interests of the globe in avoiding nuclear war than I do about Ukrainian territorial integrity. Okay.
0: Maybe, but maybe not. Because if, let's say hypothetically, we agree to this deal or some similar mm-hmm. like, peace deal, yeah. right? And then Russia's like, great, sure, here, sign off on it, boom, done. And then in two years or three years, there's another fucking invasion of another country that's right on their border, then it is fair to call this appeasement that didn't work. I'm willing to admit, I know I'm proposing a peace deal here. Mm -hmm. I am freely willing to admit, if I get everything I want here, I could still be dead wrong. And the answer could have been no, no peace deal the answer maybe potentially could have been should have been no keep giving them fucking weapons defeat russia so they know you can't do shit like this
1: if they don't have nuclear weapons then that idea would have a lot more purchase with me but they do i agree and that's which just is, reality
0: i agree which is why and we're fundamentally so, on right. the same page and with so, it and where- so i mean
1: you can pretend like oh that shouldn't sway you and that shouldn't influence you but that's fucking reality and you have to deal with the fact that the risk right now the risk of a catastrophic world ending <laughs> nuclear war is Pretty high. It's definitely the highest in our lifetimes. Oh, definitely the highest since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so, even though, look, I don't, I don't like the idea of like you know giving into any of their demands at all. And I, I understand the Ukrainian position a hundred percent. But that outcome is so catastrophic that it, you know, it must be avoided at. Uh, very even at a high cost. And the other thing I would say about this, and you and I have gone back and forth on this a million times but I just have to put it on here again, is I just can't imagine on this idea of, oh, that would be appeasement. No one is going to look at the experience of Russia in all of this, which has been catastrophic for them and be like, that's something I want to repeat. Russia will not even even. If like okay, we give them Crimea and these regions are independent or whatever, and they feel like ah, we we got our way. Which first well, of all, that's the face saving thing. Yeah, I mean that's and it is face saving because right. ultimately they have it's it's yeah. they de facto had Crimea anyway. Exactly. But um, you know, Russia has been barely able to prosecute this war um, and has burned through lots of their stockpiles and many of you know thousands of their people and lots of political will. And the you know and regime may be on shaky political footing. It's hard. Tell from the outside at this point. Even they, if they were like, Oh, that was that was really great, let's do it again. I don't even think they're capable of doing it because they've been so uh, you know, economically and militarily undercut by their own actions here. So I just I I am very skeptical of the idea that anyone would look at a deal similar to what you're proposing, which I think that would be the general outlines of, you know, something like that would be the type of deal that would be struck, that anyone would look at that and that would be like, that was awesome for Russia, and yeah, I want to do that too. So Let me just say, I
0: hope you're 100% right. I hope you're a million percent right. I would like nothing more than the exact thought process that you're talking about here, which would potentially prevent Putin from trying something like this again in the future, which would mean if that's the case, then I think my my deal is honestly genius (laughs) and it wasn't appeasement. It was the correct thing to do at the correct time, right? But uh, you're assuming that he values, you know, The economic hit and the dissent of the public more than he values the goal of gaining land and bringing back the glory of the Russian Empire. Because if the textbooks view him in the future as like he brought us back to our glory, he gained more territory, he'll say the price was worth it.
1: I only think he cares about his own power and not losing his life. I mean, they talk about they talk about in that article though uh, the war on the rocks one about how he obsessively watches the death of Gaddafi and is like sort of you know I mean these are people who want to preserve their life and preserve their power. And his legacy. And ultimately, ultimately, I think those are the things that are going to, you know, be more influential both for him and for other uh, autocrats like him. Okay, he
0: might be terminally ill. He might die soon. I think he wants to be able to say, yeah, I brought us back to the former glory of the Russian Empire. We got back territory that we had given away wrongly yeah, but when the Soviet just, Union I broke I don't up. see
1: that anyone could take that as the conclusion away from the sequence of events. I mean- You don't know what he values though. That
0: could be what he values more than whatever
1: the economic hit is and whatever the number that, of people like, who died like, How could anyone argue this restored them to their former glory? They're their global pariahs now. it's I mean, about a hundred year view. Even China and India are like, we're kind of not feeling you on what you're doing it, right now. It's about a so.
0: hundred years in the future. He wants to have a legacy and he's trying to make this his legacy. That's all I'm saying. All I'm saying is that's possible. I hope you're right. And you might be right in your analysis that it's not worth it because of all these fucking downsides and we can list 20,000 downsides for him. Mm -hmm. And you're right about all those things. Yeah. All I'm saying is don't be 100% sure in that analysis because he could value the gaining of the territory more than he values any of all the things associated with this.
1: But to zoom out again- I'll take, you know, I won't say 100 percent, right? I think I'm right that no one would look at this and be like, this was great. Let's do it. This was good for Russia and my legacy and whatever. But the risk of nuclear war is so grave and so dangerous and staring us so much in the face that it is overwhelmingly worth trying to come to some sort of deal, even, you know, a painful one. And any deal will be a, a painful one. There's no doubt about it.
0: Why do you think I'm making an ass of myself and proposing this? And I'm going to get dunked on by everybody. The pro-Ukraine people are going to hate me because (laughs) you're giving away too much and it's appeasement. And the pro-Russia people are going to be like, you know, Whatever. I don't even know what the, yeah. the pro people are going to say. <laughs> like, I'm getting in their heads, gonna, heads too. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be like, no, the Don boss has to be ours too, or something. You know yeah,
1: people are very, you know, invested in in simple narratives. But ultimately, and and the really troubling thing is, the further we go and the more steps on the escalatory path that are taken, the more difficult it becomes to even imagine something like this happening. Which is why, you know, at those early days when there were actual. Discussions that were going on, there were talks that were happening in Turkey, um, in particular, and those got short-circuited. I mean, that just made it so much harder to envision how this comes to a close.
0: So, what do you think of my deal?
1: I'll take it.
0: You'll take it. Yeah. Is there anything you would change? Any big thing you would change?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not an expert on on like international peace negotiations. But I am. I, I I just sort of <laughs> I just do sort of like your provision of like. Ukrainians can vote on it. So they have a say. Yeah. But listen. And right
0: now, they'll probably defeat it, to be honest. But in five years, if there's still, you know, 125,000 people die, they'll it. be like, oh, my
1: God, we I should have were, done a deal back then. If this can go on for five years with this all still existing. Um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I would not make it oblique. I would make it totally clear that if you vote this down, that's that's fine. Like, you get to do what you're going to do with your own land. But we're we're out. That's kind of what I I think you have to make that really clear. I
0: mean, I wouldn't have Biden literally say that to Zelensky, but I I would have a wink and a nod of like, look, just so you know, this is what's on the table, like it or dislike it. And so you guys can decide if you want to hop into this, but I highly recommend you do, because if you don't, there are going to be consequences to that that are not great, Yeah, you know? So anyway, I know I'm a genius, even though literally 98% of you are going to be like, fucking stupid ass, dumb ass (laughs) plan, (laughs) appeasement, Neville Chamberlain, (laughs) fucking whatever.
1: Both sides mm-hmm. will accuse you of siding with Nazis. Me. So they'll yes. make some both sort of Both sides will accuse me of siding with so, Nazis, both yeah. sides
0: will accuse me of being a dupe, both sides all this shit. I know it's coming, but <laughs> you know, look, there's got I want some sort of negotiation, some sort of peace deal, and even if that means Let's say it doesn't work. Let's say it is appeasement. Let's say three years from now, there's another invasion in another place. That's better than fucking or nuclear war. Yeah, because then we've just kicked the can for well, nuclear war. At, at least we're all still three here to be years. like, Kyle was wrong. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You're welcome. I just gave you three or four more years, you assholes. <laughs> Take it, goddammit. All right, all right. So, um, Crystal, there's this story that I've been thinking about for about a week now. Okay. And uh, I wanted to talk to you about this. This is not one that, you know, I... I could do something myself on this, but it wouldn't do it justice. Okay, okay? all right. So um, there's a woman who was traumatized by an ISIS attack. She didn't get physically hurt, um, but she was traumatized by an ISIS attack. She was there when it happened in 2016. Uh, her name is Shanti de, de Corte. Okay. And um, 23 years old, she's Belgian, and um, she requested to be euthanized. Which, for those of you who don't know what that means, it's basically physician-assisted suicide. Um, there are some places around the world where that is legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, most places, I think it is not legal. But in some places, it is legal. Now, usually when it is legal, there are, like, rules that go along with it. And nobody could just...
1: really anybody could be like, I mm-hmm. want to
0: die. And they're like, come here at 3.30 and you're good. Like, that's not how it works usually, right? Mm-hmm. So, um... I'll give you a little bit of what they say here. A physically healthy 23-year-old was helped to take her own life in a truly shocking euthanasia case in Belgium. Uh, Shanti Corte, traumatized after a terror attack in 2016, died in May after medics agreed she was so depressed that she could be legally euthanized. Last night, British campaigners fighting the introduction of assisted dying laws, warned that even if a narrowly defined act was brought in, it would inevitably broaden over time to include those with mental health problems. But Dignity in Dying, which is calling for a change in the law, said there was no evidence from around the world that this tended to happen. mr. DeCorte from Antwerp developed depression and post-traumatic stress disorder after being caught up at Brussels airport in the Islamic State attack of March, 2016, which killed 32. So, when I look at this, and this is, I've been, for a long time, I've been a little conflicted on this idea. So mm-hmm. let me explain. When it comes to social issues, I'm very pro-freedom. I'm very libertarian on social issues. So that just means live and let live. Mm-hmm. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, you do whatever the fuck you want, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's part of my mind. The other part of my mind believes within reason. So, you know, you could do whatever you want, but there should be reasonable regulations around it mm-hmm. so people don't go too far. So I'll give you an example. When I say legalize tax and regulate drugs, I don't literally mean you should go to CVS and be able to get crocodile, which will rot your flesh off. I mean, let's have legal uh, a safe iteration of various different types of drugs, but we're still going to regulate out of existence the hardest stuff that will destroy you. You know, like crystal meth, you'll rot the teeth out of your fucking face. Crocodile, your, your flesh will rot off. It's, it's not safe. So I'm still pro-regulation, even though I'm pro-freedom. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. In this instance...
1: Nanny state guy, that's what you're saying.
0: In this instance, what do you think? Do you think, look, if anybody wants to kill themselves, they should be able to do it for whatever reason, full stop? Or do you think, yeah, I'm pro-euthanasia, but there should be rules around it. What's your take?
1: So what I read here is that Belgium is one of the only places that has, like, mental health provision where you're allowed to go forward with the assisted suicide if you have, like, documented severe mental illness and that's why she ended up being able to qualify for um being killed and ultimately like i understand i totally understand your perspective of like how this is difficult to wrap your head around you've got this healthy 23 year old you know seemingly with her whole life potentially ahead of her and she's just you know would she come to regret that what about the people around her what about her loved ones all of those things but you know, ultimately, I do support it because I do think especially I'll, I'll tell you the thing that would make it harder for me is if she had kids, because then you are bringing other people into the situation. You're like directly harming them. But if it's really basically you're an adult, you've decided this is what you want. You've gone through a rational process and like this is the direction that you want to go in. Yeah, I do support it.
0: OK, so. Um, like I said, I've I've always been conflicted on this question, but. Uh, As I was actually prepping for this segment, I talked myself more into the position of allow euthanasia, but it should be pretty strictly regulated. So let me break that down a little more as to why. So if we say euthanasia basically for any reason, Mm -hmm. for example, there's 21 million Americans who are depressed. It's about 8.4% of the population. If just 1% of them says, yeah, we want to kill ourselves, that's 200,000 legal suicides every year. I don't like that. I'm not okay with that. I think that goes way too far. So, because there's an element of that crystal that I think is very essentialist when discussing people. So it's like, yes, you are depressed. That defines you. That's who you are. And you're, it's never gonna change. It's a very defeatist attitude. Like, there's, it's not gonna change, so just fuck it.
1: On the other hand, to say, like, we know better is very well, paternalistic.
0: Well, but hold on. I'll even grant you that, sure. But sometimes I think paternalism is okay in limited circumstances. So I'll get to what I think are the... um what I think the proper guidelines are in a little bit. And maybe somebody like this would fit the proper guidelines, but maybe I'd have a little bit more of, you have to try this drug or that drug or that drug, this medicine, and it might take you a year more or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Well, I
1: think it also is worth mentioning, she had uh, attempted suicide herself. Twice. Multiple times. Twice, yes. And was on, you know, a whole rack of different antidepressants just to get through the day. So it's very clear, like, This person was really suffering and it may not have been physical suffering, but it was clear she was in a lot of pain and you know, it was also clear that without this law, she was trying to take herself out either way. That. I understand that. But so yeah.
0: are 8.4% of Americans. If we woke up tomorrow and 8.4% of Americans off themselves, I don't uh, think we'd say freedom. Uh, I,
1: think, I think that's a straw man because— It's
0: not. It's the same idea. You no,
1: know, because not all, you know, everybody who's depressed is like, I want to kill myself and I'm going about it trying to do yeah, it. One
0: like percent of them. We wake up tomorrow, 200,000 people kill themselves.
1: But you already have—I mean, you already actually have a real big suicide problem in this country, and so, again, I think she's a sort of in extreme anguish in terms of mental health. I don't think it was like, you know, run-of-the-mill depression that 8% of the population has. She clearly tried to commit suicide multiple times and was in extraordinary anguish. So, okay.
0: Do you, would you not concede, though, that if we go with this approach where it's zero regulation, anybody could kill themselves? It's, but
1: there's not zero regulation.
0: Okay. But let me argue this point. Uh, Treat it as a pivot. I'm not responding to you directly. But if we had a society where anybody could go for any reason, that I actually do, I actually am concerned that we send a message in society that we don't value life. It's not precious and that it's expendable. And so who cares? And I don't, I think that's a terrible message to send. So the hardcore libertarian position on this? No, I think you. in the same way that I I would argue for uh, gun policy, that yeah, am I in favor of law-abiding citizens having a gun? Sure. Um, but am I in favor of people having nukes and tanks and chemical weapons and an arsenal of 21,000 guns? No. Yeah, but So the, there's some the, limit on that freedom. But
1: what's the reason for that limit? In your thinking- Regulation
0: what's the, of something that is a right, but not an absolute right. In the same way right, that we have defamation law, but we have free speech. So
1: in my view, the limits in terms of gun ownership, it's because of the potential problems for the people surrounding them. So no. And for
0: them too, suicide, stuff like that. Right.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, Because we do have a lot of data that's I mean, domestic violence increases when you have guns. Like there's there's a whole ancillary, ancillary set of issues that leads you to the idea that there should be some control over, you know, what firearms and how you can obtain them and all of those things that isn't directly about that individual necessarily, but around the surrounding people. And so that's why in this instance, you know, it really is. Pretty much about this one person and whether they're, the choices they want to make but there's a precedent to live or die. Too.
0: But there's a precedent too. And like you said, they're the only country that has you know the mental And I'll look, uh, here, let me soften my position a little bit to tell everybody what my actual take on this yeah. is. So I am in favor of euthanasia, physician assisted suicide. I think that should be legal, uh, but I think it should be limited to terminal illness,
1: mm-hmm.
0: very old age,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, severe depression after exhausting all potential treatments. So that would put a, a waiting period in there that's pr- pretty hefty waiting period. So right? she
1: could meet that standard. Potentially, potentially.
0: I, yeah. I mean, I w- just want to have this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. this case, I actually am torn on because I, if I knew all the details, maybe I would say, okay, it's fair. Right. But I, I do want to sort of pump the brakes just a touch because the totally libertarian, totally pro-freedom position on this one, I do think it's a little goofy in the same way that, at, and Corn and I talked about this the other day. I'm I'm in favor of freedom, but, if we had legal duels in this country, like, you know, two guys get into a, a fight inside mm-hmm. a bar and then mm-hmm. they're like, I challenge you to a duel mm-hmm. and then they go out there and they both shoot at each other and they both end up dead or one of them ends up dead. Am I going to sit there and say, man, they both agreed, bro. Totally fine, bro. Well, I
1: think that's sort of dumb. The, the regulation that I'm most persuaded on, I'm totally persuaded on, It was like, it's, it shouldn't be a willy-nilly thing. Like, there should be a long process of consideration. And, you know, I would put some guardrails on it. So we're not too it, far but, apart then. Yeah, but in my opinion, like- She meets those standards is what you're based saying. Based on what I see, I mean, this is someone who's tried to kill herself twice already. Okay.
0: I would need to learn more before I agreed that she reaches the standard. She might reach the standard, but yeah. there might I might've said, look, you tried X, Y, and Z, um, you know, psychological medication. Give this one a shot. Yeah. I mean, I
1: I also would say I'm not an expert on Belgium, I'll confess, but I would wager a guess that they probably have better um, healthcare outcomes than we do. And uh, if you look at the evidence, probably values life more than our system ultimately does. So I'm also not persuaded by the idea... That it would set up this um, societal notion of like life is precious.
0: Only in the scenario in the scenario I was arguing against, Mm. which is the total for any reason whatsoever you total free for all. Which I used to have that position, and then I was yeah, Yeah. because I do think that sends a message. Life's really not that precious. It you know we don't care. Um, We're not going to try to help you before you do the ultimate thing here. So I you know that's what I fear. But to get back to so what I would have is um, terminal illness. Uh, very old age, severe depression after exhausting all treatments or debilitating disability after exhausting all treatments. Mm -hmm. So if you meet one of those criteria, I I believe in freedom. I think you have a right to do that. But I do think that those guardrails are just as important as saying, we believe in freedom of speech, but defamation is illegal. We believe in freedom of speech, but direct threats of violence are illegal. You know what
1: I'm saying? Would you add in a provision if there are dependents who uh, require care from this person? Well,
0: that that would probably fall under, oh, oh, you're saying?
1: If they have kids. If they or, have kids or something Or like any that. other, you know, dependent person who's like, who they're like responsible for. To me, that changes the game.
0: I mean, it might change the calculation in terms of, um, like materially change the calculation, but substantively in terms of would I use that to say you can't make that decision? I don't know. I don't know about that.
1: I think I would. So maybe I'm actually more restrictive than you yeah, are. Yeah, maybe you are. Yeah. Because <laughs> again, that then you're talking about not just like this person making a decision that mostly just impacts them. You're talking about people who are in their care or depending on them who are going to be fucked up if mom kills herself. Yeah. Well, I feel different about that.
0: Fair enough. Um, but we should just take this moment to reflect on this fact. What we're talking about here, we're having like... A nuanced discussion about a complicated and important policy idea. And the position all across the U.S. is, except for maybe two or three states, I think maybe, mm. it's under no circumstances can you do yeah. it ever. And that I think is crazy. So, you, you know, I've been argu- in this for the context of this conversation, I've been arguing against the totally mm-hmm. libertarian perspective, totally freedom perspective where there's no regulations at all. But really, the conversation we should be having is the opposite one, which is like, you fucking monsters under no instances to let people do it. And honestly, I do think there's a little bit of a wink and a nod in our healthcare system uh, these days because, and I think this happened with my grandma on my, uh, on my mom's side who was gonna pass away and very clearly the end of her life and there were all these issues and yeah. um, she was being treated at home. And I think the, the doctor gave my, my mom and my aunt a, a little you know vial of morphine or whatever and there was a little bit of a wink and a nod like here is the morphine don't give more than this amount because then it would end her life you know what <laughs> i'm saying and so i think there i think there is like sort of under the table but mm-hmm. but we should make it over the table yeah. because I certainly would want to have that option when I hit at that that
1: point you're suffering and you're, you know, barely alive anyway.
0: So I mean, I'm in favor of regulating it. I'm in favor of being intelligent about it and exhausting all the, all other options. But once you hit that end of the road, I mean, come on. I do think though, I'd be very curious to see what the audience thinks. I do think they'll probably mostly agree with her and say, yeah, you know, it's totally fine. Um, and I, I get it. I get it. I would just need to know some more facts about it before I really were to pull the trigger on her. Maybe I'd want to pull the trigger on her almost literally. <laughs> Maybe mm-hmm. I'd want to have her try one or two more medications or something. You know what I'm saying? Because I do think people, help is the most important thing. You should try that first and foremost. Yeah. And then after all, everything's exhausted, then. Lady
1: was taking like 18 different drugs, though. it wasn't working for her. No, I mean, I, I hear you. Yeah. I hear
0: you. Maybe she would pass the test. I don't know. But ultimately, I, I feel like it is a sad story no matter how you slice it or oh. dice it. You know what I'm saying? There's no doubt about
1: but that. No doubt about
0: that. I'm definitely that. pro-euthanasia, but it's got to be within certain
1: and And I just, guidelines. last thought, if we really want to have, like, a culture of life in this country, we would do a lot more to support people. Medi- <laughs> Medicare for all. That would be U- free, one place you might want to
0: start. Free universal mental health care treatment, which, you know, you should be able to go into a, a mental health clinic anywhere Absolutely. around the country for free. Just like Absolutely. you should be able to go into the a doctor's office anywhere for free. You know, it is crazy. You're right. If we're going to value life first and foremost, we need to do those things for sure. Yeah. So,
1: all right, guys, we have a great guest for you, Luke Savage. He is the uh, a staff writer of Jacobin and phen- phenomenal writer um, and also author of a new book called The Dead Center. Let's get to it.
0: Luke Savage, thanks so much for joining us, man. We really appreciate it. So you have a new book that just came out on centrism. So first, tell everybody the title of the book and second, just give everybody like a Cliff Notes version of the thesis because this is something that, you know, Crystal and I, it's a topic Crystal and I are often discussing on our own, centrism, liberalism,
1: uh, neoliberalism, li-
0: neoliberalism, potential
1: right. death of the neoliberal project, all of those things which the you status cover in the book. Quo.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that, the potential death of it. I'm curious his thoughts on that. But first, start with the title of the book and the general thesis.
2: The title of the book is The Dead Center, uh, Reflections on Liberalism and Democracy After the End of History. And uh, and I realize that's kind of a, I don't know, a convoluted subtitle. Um, you know, the a better title for the book, in a sense, might have been The Undead Center, because, of course, the center isn't. I mean, it's not dead. Right. The Democratic Party is in power. Joe Biden did win the 2020 presidential election, um, you know, in, in Britain, where there was a big left insurgency between 2015 and 2019. Uh, that the neoliberal center has taken charge of the Labour Party or taken back charge, I should say, of the Labour Party. Um, so in that sense, you know, the center isn't exactly dead. Um, but in calling it dead, you know, I'm really making a different kind of claim. I'm not saying that uh, centrists are unable to win elections, uh, that they are, you know, uh, that they are dead in, in in that kind of more conventional or traditional sense. Uh, it's more the, the case that they are... Uh, you know the, the the dynamism and and vibrancy, such as those things might ever have existed in in this project, um, have 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 disappeared. Um, you know, and we can talk about um, I'm sure we will talk about the various ways in which that's happened. Um, but I mean, you know, th- this is a project that is now kind of running on uh, fumes. There's not a, there's no kind of ideological. Uh, coherence anymore. Um, and whether you agreed or disagreed with the ideology, there was a coherence at one time, you know, in the 1990s, especially. Um, so that's part of it. Um, as for the subtitle, the, you know, uh, being after the end of history, um, you know, that's a little more, uh, I suppose, complicated to explain, you know, the end of history obviously was this, this phrase that, uh, Francis Fukuyama, uh, you know, kind of popularized in the 1990s. And the basic idea was, you know, well, we've tried all the big experiments are done, all the big experiments the 20th century are done, even kind of moderate social democracy. We're not really doing that anymore. All, it, all there is just in for eternity now is liberal capitalism. So events may happen, but history as a kind of progression forward is, is over. Um, and I don't think you can possibly have lived through the past 20 years um, in the United States or anywhere else and and believe anymore that that's the case. You know, this is a this is a political and an, and an economic and a social order in a constant state of crisis. Uh, there isn't a sense of forward momentum that hasn't returned. But, um, you know, the you know, the his, the end of history has ended, I suppose, is what I'm saying. So that, that would be a brief uh, kind of, I guess, uh, explanation of the title and, and subtitle of the book.
1: To your point about the, like, lack of ambition and sort of utter vacuousness of modern centrism or liberalism or neoliberalism, however you want to label it, you write, it's become difficult to say what, if anything, the contemporary liberal project is actually about. As a political practice today, what is generally called liberalism is functionally small, so conservative in rhetoric, gesture, and affect. The liturgies of change and progress remain, but any sincere belief in them has melted into air." Um, Do you track that development to basically the Obama years and his investment in constantly persuading people that he was doing the absolute maximum amount that was possible and that just in reality, not much was really possible?
2: I think he has a a deep responsibility for this because his gift, I think, really more than any other living politician, uh, you know, active or retired, uh, his gift was. Speaking in really quite conservative terms, but doing so in a way that sounded kind of sweeping and grand and 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 progressive. Like he speaks in the register of progress. Obama always, even when he's explaining uh, why we can't or shouldn't do progressive things. I think that's one of his uh, his unique talents. But I think it goes a little deeper than just Obama. I think that's a style that he's helped popularize, in which lots of um, Pretty pale imitators, like you know, your Pete Budajijas, people like that, uh, try to copy uh, and and kind of you know don't don't copy. Uh, they don't they they really can't pull it off in the same way as as he could. Um, but I think it goes a little deeper than that. I mean, I think it also reflects the fact that something like the Democratic Party is a very contradictory institution. You know, it's a coalition. Uh, you know, as one person pretty p- pithily said it, I can't remember who during the primaries, you know, the Democratic Party is the party both of, you know, private health insurance oligarchs and the people who are using their expensive uh, plans or not using them because they can't afford them. You know, um, a Democratic Party contains multitudes, although, you know, it's uh, you know, there's there are significant imbalances of power. You know, people who vote for the Democratic Party or many of them are far less Powerful and far less represented in the things democratic politicians do and say and are are willing to do and say, and so one of the things I think that comes out of that contradiction is this well kind of contradictory posture. And there's a whole uh, essay about this in the book called uh, "Why Liberals Pretend They Have No Power," uh, where on the one hand you you know you have liberals embrace this the, you know this kind of language of uh, progress and social justice. And then, you know, uh, often in the same flourishes, they will back off on actually doing anything, or they will act as if they are not, you know, powerful agents who are, uh, you know, capable of doing things. So, you know, there's, you know, pretty ridiculous trend today. I'm sure the two of you have picked up on where, you know, somebody like Gavin Newsom, who's, you know, the governor of, you know, is California the world's fifth largest economy, something like that. Just, just the state of California, uh, you know, will, will do. Uh, tweet threads about how like, you know, we need to, we need to uh, do something about climate change. And it's like, yeah, okay, well you're the governor of California. Maybe you can do something. Or, you know, I think about in Canada when Justin Trudeau went to a climate march in Montreal and tweeted about how he was marching for like his children's future and things like that. It's like, you're the prime minister of Canada, you know? So there's, there's a contradictory posture play here between this, you know, basically small C conservative approach to politics, like, you know, we'll make changes incrementally in the fullness of time and due course, uh, you know, in, you know, when, you know, when, uh, when we feel like it. Uh, And then on the other hand, there's this language of, you know, the world is burning. uh, You know, uh, there's racism everywhere. The, you know, the, the ice caps are melting. Someone has to do something. Um, And, So there's this posture of futility that accompanies the other one. It's a very odd uh, marriage.
0: So an argument that Crystal and I have had before on air is on this exact topic, uh, is the neoliberal global order, is it sort of like chugging along and we're in the middle of it? Or is it, like you said, running on fumes, sort of beginning to crack Um, and generally your position, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris Hull, is that, yeah, we are kind of seeing the end of it now because there's a lot of evidence that points in that direction. Whereas my take is, is actually the opposite in my darker moments, because, you know, you see like the rise of Corbinism in the UK that got crushed. You saw the rise of the Bernie Sanders movement in the US that ultimately got destroyed by organized capital. Um, and insofar as I could tell, it looks like, you know, we're sort of, to, to bring up the Overton window, the idea of like, what's the spectrum of thought that's allowable and mm-hmm. policies that are allowable? It seems like that stays in a pretty, uh, in a pretty narrow window where, uh, you know, but while the rhetoric, to your point, might be creeping left and it seems like, yeah, there's some evidence of the, of the beginning of the cracks, they always seem to get their shit together at the last moment in the fourth quarter and, and, and pull it out. And you end up, you know your your choices end up being Joe Biden or Donald Trump right so uh i guess what i'm asking for is tr- convince me that they it is actually running on fumes because it seems so fucking resilient that in my darker moments i do kind of feel like uh like the end of history analysis might be right, like, are we gonna be having, you know, would P- are people like us in 100 years, are they gonna be sitting here having the same debate? Like, yeah, any day now, it's gonna, it's gonna change, mm-hmm. or like convince me, because I want, I want Crystal to be right on this. I want you to be right. I want you to be right that the Bernie Sanders movement and, and the Corbin movement and all these little things are, are going to lead to, well, no, at the very least, we're gonna have like, you know, whatever, uh, a New Deal type era again.
1: Well, let me just say, before you answer that, Luke, because I am very curious about your thoughts. Um, I'm actually ambivalent about whether I'm right or not, because my terror is that the the right wing authoritarian answer to the end of neoliberalism is a lot more organized and a lot more positioned to take power than the project we would all like to be engaged in. But go ahead, Luke. What are your thoughts? And I would on that? just say that's a yeah.
0: perpetuate the, if the right wing does this, this authoritarian strain, this like Trumpism strain. If that continues, I think that's a. Perpetuation of the neoliberal order, but with just an, a more authoritarian, yeah. social conservative face on it. But anyway, go, go ahead,
1: Luke. Luke. Your thoughts on any and all of that?
2: Well, I, I think uh, in the spirit of being a good centrist, I'm going to come down uh, somewhere in the middle of <laughs> two of you on this one. I mean, I mean, I am I, I, of, I'm of, uh, you know, I'm kind of of two minds about it. I mean, I think that uh, the, the the point I'm making in the book, I think, really, the thesis, uh, if we're talking about the neoliberal project, is that uh, you know it matters when a project is ideologically dead you know a project can be ideologically dead and still be very you know powerful and influential it can still be hegemonic in fact in terms of like you know our daily lives and and uh you know political practice and all kinds of things um and in that sense you know uh uh you know kyle i i, I agree with you i think um but you know, like that that it is hegemonic that is, but, but on the other hand um, you know, I think it also matters when a project has lost both intellectual and popular credibility. Um, so if you compare the current moment to um, you know, the, the, the 1990s say, I mean, it, it is true that um, you know, these big left movements over the past few years were um, you know, were stopped and we don't know uh, you know, I think, it's absolutely the case that the left is not as well organized today as the authoritarian right. Um, and that is, uh, you know, of significant concern. But if you look at neoliberalism now and if you look at it in the 1990s in the 1990s, there were lots of intelligent uh, and people who thought of themselves as progressively minded people who believed in. Uh, something like, you know, Clintonism or, or Blairism, and actually bought the idea that this was some kind of creative fusion of like the best of the social democratic welfare state and kind of a progressive market philosophy or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, they, and, and there were a whole bunch of assumptions that came along with that, right? I mean, people really did believe, you know, boom and bust is over. There's just going to be kind of endless growth. Uh, you know, there's, uh, every country in the world is going to become a sort of Jeffersonian democracy with like a multi-party, uh, system and a liberal constitution, like, and people, people didn't just say this stuff. It wasn't just, I mean, it was hype, but I mean, people believed in it. I think, uh, it's very, I mean, it's a diminishing number of very committed ideologues who believe in that today. And, uh, it's true, uh, to, to kind of bring us back to the present that, you know, these left insurgencies have not ultimately succeeded or haven't succeeded yet. But I mean, if you think about something like the Bernie campaign in 2016 and what its success suggested about like how much popular buy-in there is for something like Clintonism anymore, it's very little, right? I mean, uh, the, Clinton, the Clintonites believed that in running that candidate with, you know, that message and that platform was gonna be hugely popular. Uh, and it wasn't, um, you know. And I think the same can be said about a lot of the Democrats in the twenty twenty field as well. Uh, they were all trying to just kind of like smash the reset button and just like get the machine running again, uh, you know. And and it, it it didn't work. At the end of the day, the party had to smash the emergency glass and go with Joe Biden. And that and that wasn't, you know, uh, that wasn't an expression of their confidence and and like a widespread buy-in for this project. It was a gesture of desperation, I think. And 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 it, uh, it was emblematic of the fact that, you know, they're, as I said, I think running on, running on fumes. So I'm not sure that really answers the question. It is kind of a centrist, equivocating answer I gave you both, but I think that's how I'd uh, respond if that makes sense.
1: Well, in my view, it's a paradox because on the one hand, like the intellectual project is clearly bankrupt. I mean... We are on the brink of a nuclear war. We're on the brink of, like, climate collapse. We're on the brink of a global recession. Clearly, the political project has failed. Um, It's also clear that the electorate has basically sort of ideologically rejected the political project. As you're pointing out, the people who are still perpetuating the political project don't even really believe in the political project anymore. Their best... Their best hope for the future is like to try to recapture that Obama magic by, you know, pumping up in the press these various glittery figures they put forward, whether it's Kamala or whether it's Pete or whether it's Beto or whoever it is, which you go through some of in the book. But in terms of any sort of like actual political content, it's just really not there, which is why, you know, we shouldn't be surprised that. Headed into a midterm that they have billed as the most critical midterms in the nation's history, as, you know, absolutely existential stakes, which I don't even disagree with. They don't even have a, you know, a plan as to the number one issue, the economy, what they would do if they keep power or even add a couple seats. So I think that speaks to like the paradox here, where they still have a lock on the levers of power. Um, you know, the project still has a lot of like. Purchase not just here but around the world. I mean, Macron just got reelected, and all those sorts of things. Trudeau's still up there doing his thing, but in terms of you know the pub- public's rejection of it, and also in terms of its own ideological confidence, that has all been uh, stripped away. And. You know, to me, it only seems like a matter of time before someone recognized that they shouldn't just capture the aesthetics of a different political project the way that the Democrats are trying to capture the aesthetics of this more existential politics. Republicans are trying to capture the aesthetics of, like, you know, being more adversarial or just, like, sort of being assholes and owning the libs. That someone will actually put the content to go with that. It's just a question of which side. I mean, I I would just say, sorry
0: to cut you off, Luke, but organized capital is the biggest factor here. Yeah. They're so resilient. They'll find a way to co-opt the language, make it sound way better, shine it up, give like an Obama 2.0 that actually lands. And then my fear is you get somebody like that, they get in there. And it is what I like to call a status quo manager. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I'll give you the tweaks around the edges. Yeah. You know, we'll make some change that materially helps people in a real way. But ultimately it hides the fact that we could do way better than this. You know what sure, I'm saying? So I like organized capital. I think it's so fucking powerful yeah. that e- I take every point you made and I take every point you made, Luke. I just, I think it's, they're so fucking powerful and they're so resilient that they always find a way to just sort of like quash it without even people realizing they quashed it. You know what but,
1: I'm saying? But like, if that's the case, I, see, I don't, I don't really buy that you really believe that because if that's the case, like, why bother?
0: <laughs> you um, know? <laughs> no, that, I think, honestly, I, I think that's a fair point. And my reaction to it is maybe one that isn't gonna satiate most of the audience, but to the extent that the popular movements uh change the language, shift the Overton window, make things like duh positions with the public, that I think puts sufficient pressure where those so-called tweaks around the edges yeah. become more and more materially important yeah. and good. You know what I'm saying? It's more yeah. sort of like what we're seeing with Biden now, where he was like effectively forced to do some semblance of student loan debt reduction right? and forced to do like- Even though we really didn't want to. Right. Yeah, I mean, forced that's, to pardon nonviolent, uh, you know, right. federal offenders, weed yes. offenders. So like- I mean, that's, that's ultimately
1: that's my, my view also is that, you know, the burgeoning labor movement, that if you had a real, you know, people-powered movement, that it would be enough to overcome those entrenched forces of permanent capital, even I, though that's very difficult. I guess
0: the word overcome is our only disagreement because I, I guess- like, what would you define as overcome, you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. whereas I would say, I don't even think we're really overcoming it, like Biden's not overcoming it, he's part of it, right, but in a sense, you could say it's been overcome a little bit because the tweaks around the edges have gotten more substantive than what they previously were. you understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying Luke yeah. w- way in think? here, Luke, sorry, we're arguing with each other
2: no, i mean it's 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 interesting, and i don't I don't think there's a you know a clear or obvious uh answer here um. I mean, one one thing I'll say just on the book is that, you know, this has gone into in uh, in the book's longest section in, in pretty elaborate uh, detail because the book's longest section consists in these kind of profiles, I guess, you know, profiles in uh, diffidence, profiles in banality of, you know, various um, liberal figures. A lot of them were, were written or at least kind of conceived of during the 2020 primaries. And something something I've done, uh, you know, I think, Maybe it's giving myself too much credit, but something I like to think I've done that others aren't doing is, you know, I really do read very closely and listen very closely to what, you know, an Amy Klobuchar says or a Pete Buttigieg says or a Justin Trudeau says. Um, And you can you can learn a lot and, uh, you know, about what what they think it is they're doing. And I think it's interesting that, you know, I mean, for all the for all the, um, you know, calling liberals uh, cowards or, you know, for suggesting that they're, uh, you know, they're always retreating and things like that. I mean, that's true, but it's also the case that for a lot of them, this kind of management that you just described, Kyle, this is the project. This is consciously what they see themselves as doing. Um, they they don't think their task is to, you know, challenge or alter the, you know, the status quo in any significant or substantive way. They think their job is to tell a better story about it. And then so what politics becomes is a competition for who can tell the most compelling, Story. I mean, it is, in a sense, a sort of attempt to sort of manufacture popular consent for a whole bunch of things um, that are happening anyway, um, or, or, you know, are, are, are believed to, you know, be inevitable or something like that. Um, you know, something like what the Fed is about to do in engineering a recession would be would be an example. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's just being thought of as like, that's a technical decision. This is not even a political, you know, thing. This is just the way things are. It's part of, you know, nature or something like that. Right. Um, but, but I do think that there's a limit and this is where the, you know, the book obviously in many places has a very sort of, uh, you know, cynical if you want, or ironic or polemical tone towards, uh, a lot of these, uh, individuals, um, because, you know, as as the two of you can probably tell, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of a Beto O'Rourke or or a Pete Buttigieg, and I know neither of you are. Dare uh, you. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? No one insults the honor of of Beto on this show. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but it like the optimistic, I suppose, uh, thrust of this part of the book. Anyway, is that what these people have have are trying to do? This kind of orderly management of the status quo, where they. They absorb and and sort of integrate popular pressure, but strip it of anything actually substantive and then it just comes out in kind of rhetoric. That's not really working anymore, like in in the way that it used to. It's not as effective. Um, And I think we saw that in 2020. I mean, you know, Joe Biden was absolutely not the person that the Democratic Party establishment or its corporate patrons wanted be the democratic nominee they wanted some young exciting person who's going to get everybody thrilled about uh you know neoliberalism again and that's that's not what happened and so i think there's you know the system can kind of reboot itself partially you know and it, it did it did so in 2020 by with the defeat of sanders and other things um but like at a certain point you have to deal with the fact that people's material realities are getting worse and that uh you know i'm not an accelerationist i'm not hoping for this i just think that the uh i just think that's the course we're on and liberalism as it's currently constituted is is not even anywhere close to being equipped to deal with this and so at a certain point i think something has got to give and i like to think that it's true that the uh, authoritarian right has is much more likely to have the forces of, you know, capital behind it, um, contrary to what, you know, some, uh, some claim about capital actually supports the left or something. Um, but, uh, you know, the left will always have, I think, the fact that its agenda, broadly speaking, uh, has a lot of uh, support from a lot of people. And uh, as long as, you know, w- w- as long as we're uh, prepared to explain that agenda clearly, and as long as, uh, you know, there's, uh the right kind of political leadership, perhaps, you know, leadership taking, uh, you know, uh, seizing on Bernie Sanders example, what he did was very effective, even if it wasn't successful. Um, you know, I actually think that, you know, uh, we may be disorganized at the moment, but I think that, uh, the left is still better positioned to offer any kind of credible alternative to this than it was w- when I was growing up where, oh, you know, sure. I think I mentioned this in the book's introduction where just, I, I became a, I was a teenage leftist and when I was 14. Um, you know, there was no, there was no left media ecosystem, really. There was no, uh, and even within what there was, a lot of it wasn't really that credible and it wasn't that uh, constructive. It was just about, well, we have to stop cuts to something or, you know, there was no positive project and I think we're much better placed now. So that's another, I guess, optimistic thing I would inject into this discussion as well.
1: Yeah. Well, and the the grassroots labor movement is real. I mean, you know, that was the piece that was yeah. really missing from Sanders 2016 and Sanders 2020 is the fact that, you know, labor has been obliterated in this country. It's basically a non-entity um, for all intents and purposes. And so to the extent that you could actually build that, you know, working class based movement around material conditions, any sort of left project is going to be much better set up to succeed.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. I'm not sure I have um, too much to add to that. I mean, I think that the, uh, you know, I, I wish that I'd gotten to write the introduction to the book later, because I certainly would have mentioned uh, all of these, uh, all, all this incredible organizing that's going on. Um, and uh, I mean, I think it's one of the, by, it's by far one of the most inspiring things that's that's happening uh, anywhere right now. And, um, you know, I, I hope it, that in a few years, you know, I think that obviously this, recession that's about to be engineered is partly, I think about, you know, disciplining oh, the labor movement. Um, and, and so, you know, I hope that, um, you know, I, I hope that that doesn't, uh, stop the momentum because, uh, everything that's going on right now is, uh, I mean, it's just so important. And, uh, you know, I don't remember where the, uh, I don't remember who said it or where the, where the quote is from, but, you know, there's the, the line about, you know, the best response to organized greed is organized labor. And, you know, it, that, that's always been the case. It's very much the case today.
0: Luke, I'm curious your thoughts on this, and I'm curious your thoughts as well on this, Crystal, but um, one of my takes, which I feel like is kind of popular with the more normie audience, but maybe not as popular with, you know, like my own audience, is what what do you think of the aesthetics of radicalism versus quote unquote centrism? So one of the things that I kept Mm -hmm. saying about uh, Bernie in 2016 and 2020 is that, I actually would have preferred if he didn't change a goddamn thing about his policies and how he was stumping forward, how he was arguing for it, the stuff he was saying. But I actually like the idea that the left sort of puffs its chest out and says, actually, we're the centrists, we're the moderates. None of this stuff is crazy because you know, when you look at the polls, whether it's minimum wage, whether it's the pro-act and unionization, whether it's Medicare for all, whether it's paid time off by law, all of these things are popular. But I oftentimes feel like with the left, specifically the online left, they they almost kind of sometimes fall in love with um, the the fact that they're an edgy subculture, and it's like it becomes like an insular clique, and it almost it becomes about like virtue signaling as to, you know, I'm more socialist than you are. And, and I actually feel like that kind of gets in the way of expanding the movement and bringing in normies who otherwise agree with us. So what, what do you think of that? Do you uh, agree with me that um, we can be functionally radical? We can be uh, substantively radical while almost embracing the aesthetics of, of centrism? Do you think that's a good idea or no?
2: Uh, Broadly speaking, I think it's a good idea. I don't I I think I I wouldn't describe it as embracing the aesthetics of centrism. But what Sanders, you know, I mean, one of his like classic flourishes, right, is when he says, you know, uh, something isn't a radical idea. You know, it's an idea that a majority uh, agrees with. And I think that's the right. uh, I think that's the right move every single time. I mean, there are cases, obviously, where you know, the role of the left is to advocate for things that don't have majority support, um, because all kinds of things that are important, all kinds of causes that need to be taken up, don't have majority support. And the left's job is to make sure that, uh, you know, as soon as possible, they do. But when it comes to, you know, the the big campaign items, and the, you know, the things you really lead with, um, uh, you know, I think, uh, presenting them quite explicitly as, you know, this is where the majority is, and it's actually the you know, it's elite institutions, it's the political class, it's corporate interests, you know, they're against, uh, they're they're the ones who are uh, against this, you know, this is uh, common sense, this is conventional wisdom. I mean, if you look at what the right did in the 1970s and 80s, in terms of embedding its logic, and it's like ways of thinking, its idioms, uh, into just the popular consciousness, like such that when, when, when we say economics now, like that just means basically neoclassical, like trickle down Reaganomics, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the right, like we have right. has a lot to commend it. There are things we can borrow from their example. Um, I I should rephrase that. They have a lot to commend them strategically in terms of how successful this was. And I think, uh, it's worth studying for that reason. I mean, um, you know, One of the things they did was represent all of this as common sense, you know, small government is common sense, Uh, getting the government out of your lives. I mean, there's a populist message intrinsic uh, in that, even though that wasn't what they were talking about, really. Fundamentally, they were talking about uh, uploading a whole bunch of power and wealth um, to people at the top so that, you know, forget the government, you're now just going to have, you know, corporations, uh, even more, uh, even more empowered to determine, uh, you know, your daily existence and things like that. And, and your sphere of, uh, action as a citizen is going to be, or, you know, as anything as as an individual is going to be severely limited. Like you can buy things and you can consume, um, and, uh, you can participate in the marketplace and you can vote for politicians who are, you know, uh, Increasingly converging on on fundamental questions, the right was able to represent all of that as some kind of like populist, uh, commonsensical thing, and we need to do that on the left, as it were, for good rather than than evil. So uh, I hope that answers your question, Kyle. It certainly does. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and they also um, they also applied their own lens to American history to claim that they were the rightful heirs to the founding fathers and our entire American national tradition. And so, you know, anytime anyone then opposes their, like, terrible giveaway to the rich economic project, that's un-American. Yeah, you're like Venezuela. (laughs) Right. I mean, uh, it was very (laughs) rhetorically successful because— what their actual project is and was is incredibly radical. And if you just, you know, ask the American people like, hey, do you want to give away the store to rich people and not have public education or even like public roads? I mean, this is the, the ideological framework that they're based in, this sort of like radical libertarianism. People would be like, hell no. But they managed to put this sort of populist rhetorical gloss on it that's been very successful.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, I... I you know, I I, I keep uh, citing Bernie Sanders. Uh, I mean, for good reason. I think just because I think he he does this more effectively than any other American politician I've seen. But I'm thinking, uh, just in in uh, as you were talking, Crystal, it, it made me think of a a clip of Bernie. Uh, I can't remember. He was speaking to some workers somewhere, and I can't remember um, I can't remember what the context was. I don't think it was a, a Starbucks or Amazon, but he was speaking to some workers somewhere, and and he was saying that. Uh, something to the effect of, um, you know, all these, all these politicians get up and they talk about how much they love America, but you can't love America unless you, you know, you love the workers of America or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of butchering his flourish, but the the essence of it was, uh, you know, he was uh, again, you know, representing, uh, you know, representing a project of um, social solidarity and, uh, you know, you know, class politics as, uh, as commonsensical and as part of, you know the American tradition, and I think that's something that just has to, uh, it, you know, it has to happen for for all kinds of reasons. You know, uh, any any progressive project, even any you know revolutionary project, any any political project that's transformative in any way, is always going to have to draw from the you know the language that people know and the idioms that they're immersed in. And there is a way that you know that can be done. Uh, like you can embrace uh, those sorts of idioms without. Uh, you know, channeling any kind of, uh, you know, conservative connotations they might have. And I think, again, Sanders is such a good uh, practitioner of that kind of style. It's exactly what we need.
0: So, uh, Luke, what do you make of uh, the—this is a hard word to say, but I'm going to try—fetishization. Nailed it. I struggle with that one, too. Kind of struggled, but nailed it. (laughs) Uh, The fetishization— Fetishization. Fetishization (laughs) of— bipartisanship, because one of my arguments that I've come back to many times is that bipartisanship isn't inherently good or bad. It just is. It depends on the content of what you're doing. So oftentimes in D.C., they'll, in a bipartisan fashion, agree to cut taxes for Wall Street or to bail out Wall Street or to do the next war or something. And that is objectively bad. But there are times where, for example, Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee worked together and they got it through the Senate. Uh, you know, for the US to stop supporting the uh, Saudi Arabian genocide in Yemen. So it's neither good nor bad. But certainly in corporate media, you get this sense that it is inherently a good thing, bipartisanship. Um, What do you think of that? And also, has this mind virus almost trickled over into the population where even your average American would be like, yes, bipartisanship is good, even though it's not necessarily good?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's the whole bipartisanship thing is fascinating because we're constantly told that there isn't enough bipartisanship, and if you actually like listen to what politicians from both major parties are saying, basically every day they're just constantly talking about being bipartisan. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking of uh, uh, you know a uh, cl- uh, clip from a few years ago where you know, uh, Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi, like went to that baseball game and they, you know, they did a whole kind of spiel about how, you know, most of what we do is bipartisan and, you know, uh, you know, people just think that we're, you know, people just think that we disagree or, you know, something like that. Um, and that speaks to, you know, as you said, Kyle, I mean, the, the way that this is kind of fetishized doesn't end in itself, regardless of the outcomes it, uh, produces. Um, I think there are a number of reasons for that, but I mean, you know, I was asked recently when I was uh, talking about the book on the Jacobin show to define centrism. And I was asked, you know, whether there's anything that's distinguishing uh, that distinguishes centrism from just like mainstream liberalism. And I think bipartisanship is part of how I would answer that question, because Mm -hmm. I think centrism fundamentally, like it's not an ideology in terms of there being a a set of like fixed uh, points that, uh, you know, are, are sort of identifiable across decades. But what, what it is, you know, ideological in a different sense, I suppose, is, you know, all kinds of things that people in somewhere like Washington DC do on a daily basis, things that elites do, the culture that they create around, uh, their processes of decision-making and camaraderie and all of that, uh, centrism is sort of elevating that to, uh, the level of sort of, a. uh, you know some kind of like practice that we're all supposed to think is noble and and great and bipartisanship is a big part of that story because you know of course uh, a lot of what these people do is bipartisan both in a political sense and just i mean in a kind of a uh, more colloquial like social sense right a lot of these people uh, attend the same parties they you know they Uh, I mean, the Trump and the, uh, you know, uh, Ivanka Trump was friends with Chelsea, you know, Chelsea Clinton. The Clintons Mm. were at Donald Trump's wedding, obviously, before he (laughs) got into (laughs) politics. But, you know, there's a fair amount of bipartisanship within the American uh, elite. And uh, a big part of that uh, quality is expressed through, I think, uh, centrism, where to these people, those things that they do are just ends in themselves. I mean, they are really less concerned about the outcomes. They're just, you know, they'll compete with each other and maybe like honor will be offended and, uh, you know, feelings will be hurt occasionally, but like fundamentally, uh, a lot of them, I think actually do see a lot of, uh, you know, find a lot of common ground and commonality. And so it would make sense that they would then take a concept like bipartisanship and strip it of, of any substantive, dimension wherein they just are talking about like something is good if it has the imprint of bipartisanship. And I think we saw again and again throughout the Obama administration in particular, especially in the early years, what a just self-defeating and disastrous impulse that is if you actually are trying to pass any kind of agenda.
1: Um, you spend a good bit of time in the book um, with essays talking about the media and specifically the media's coverage of the uh, 2020 primaries. And you know, Sagar actually did a really interesting monologue. I think that was this week. I don't know. But about the decline of late night TV and the way that ratings across the board have fallen off. And, you know, at two of the main cable news networks, CNN and MSNBC, they're basically overtly in a process of managed decline. MSNBC didn't even really bother to replace uh, Maddow with someone that they thought could cap. Anywhere close to her ratings. And sure enough, Alex Wagner's ratings are uh, like a million people lower than what Rachel Maddow's ultimately were. So you have the decline of corporate media, at least in terms of number of eyeballs. And it's sort of similar to the uh, Joe Biden situation where it's like they're still really powerful and they still have a lot of sway, even as the eyeballs and the business model and all those things are sort of melting away. So what do you think that this shift in the media landscape is ultimately going to mean for any potential left project? What are the sort of opportunities and what are the perils of a uh, much more fragmented media space?
2: Well, I mean, I was just I was going to uh, begin my response by talking about fragmentation. I mean, I really think that is the biggest risk, uh, because obviously one of the things that's leading I mean, the. the you know cable news especially and and mainstream uh, media institutions more generally all kinds of things are um complicit if you want or involved in the decline and and they don't all have to do with uh, technology although that's a big part of the story I mean social media uh just has led to a much more diffuse kind of public discourse and the and that has all kinds of that has a lot to commend it because obviously you know you can create space for alternative, narratives and alternative voices to emerge and, and things like that. And it's not all just, uh, you know, a handful of media conglomerates and, and a handful of talking heads that are paid, you know, $50,000 a night or whatever to talk about the news. Um, other things have discredited the media as well. I mean, uh, I mean, I think, you know, it's been kind of memory hold like so much in uh, American history, re- even recent history, but I think the Iraq war uh, did so much to discredit, um, you know, the uh, the, you know, the the, the mainstream media, um, you know, and, and a number of other things have uh, as well. You know, I think there are more more recent examples. Um, the mainstream media's uh, its power and influence, I think, was also significantly uh, challenged by the experience of 2016, where, I mean, I think the media really did think, uh, you know, including the sort of mainstream right-wing media, if you want Fox News and, and others, I mean, they really did think they could just cancel Donald Trump, that if they just sort of did what they'd done with, um, you know, uh, uh, Republican primary candidates in the past, uh, that they, uh, you know, didn't like or whatever, they could just sort of, uh, hold up a gaffe or a statement or something and, uh, you know everything Donald Trump said was going to be like when Rick Perry forgot uh, the third department mm-hmm. he was going to abolish
1: Oop, or I whatever. Like, um, that was a great moment. Loved it. Right? <laughs> at,
2: at one of probably one of the funniest gaps in political history. I think I still think about it w- about once a month, actually. Um,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but uh, but so you know the power of the mainstream media right has has declined as well and uh, its ability to actually sort of direct people if you want direct voters. Um, but there's a risk in all of this, which you know was implicit in your question crystal. I mean, the fragmentation is a serious problem. And actually this goes back to the question you asked, Kyle, about um, you know, kind of language that is maybe, uh, you know, not really broad and popular and is kind of increasingly insular. Um, the internet just just breeds that, and it's a really big problem. and And so, you know, my hope is that uh, this new landscape uh, will create space for, you know, pretty big, you know, broad ecumenical alternative voices on the left, uh, as opposed to just kind of fragmenting us further into subcultures uh, that have their own uh, language, that have their own, uh, you know, uh, you know, have their own uh, narratives and, and that kind of thing, and and uh, you know, because that's not a way to you know, you can't ground a political project. You know, there can be disagreement and there can be different you know tendencies and ideas, and and, and that's healthy. Um, but I think to be a, a, a meaningful and, and um, you know, potent democratic force, you have to, you know, there has to be this kind of broadness. And so um, at its best, I think the left uh, media does that. Um, but there is a risk, I think, um, connected to this wider shift that uh, you're talking about, Crystal, of uh, further fragmentation. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I had a, a kind of a you know, panacea I could offer you as in the form of an answer that would just, you know, solve the problem. But uh, I don't. It's I agree. It's a risk.
0: Well, Luke Savage, everybody should get that book for sure. Um, It's fascinating. I could talk to you all day. Thanks so much for talking to us. We really appreciate it. Tell everybody uh, where they can find you on Twitter and plug whatever you'd like to plug.
2: All right. Um, Well, yeah, thanks uh, so much for having me, guys. I mean, first time, long time. Uh, I I think I've interacted with both of you many times. I don't think we'd we'd ever actually spoken. So uh, this was a real pleasure. Um, People can find me on Twitter at uh, at Luke W. Savage. And they can also check out my podcast, uh, Michael and Us, which can be found on the Jacobin Radio Network and, you know, wherever fine podcasts are streamed. uh, It's a, you know, politics and uh, culture podcast. Uh, you know, if you like this show, you'll probably uh, like Michael and us. So uh, so feel free to check that out as well.
1: Absolutely. And I told you this um, off air, but I'll say it uh, here as well. You're just a very gifted writer. I mean, the content is phenomenal and that's what matters the most, but I am envious of your uh, prose ability. So people should check out the book for that, if nothing else. But the content is where it's really at.
0: I'm getting jealous, everybody. Thanks so much. <laughs> <I'm getting laughs> jealous. Yeah, of course. <laughs> All right, Luke. Thanks, man. Take we'll care. talk to you. All right, that was Luke Savage. Um, I think that's an interesting conversation. i could I could talk to him all day. I mean, you know, he's interested in the exact same things that we're interested in. So
1: yeah, I mean, this is like, to me, a central question paradox. You know, it's it's about the present. It's about where we're headed. It's about the most likely outcomes. It's about what we could like reasonably do to build any sort of a left political project. so it's it's an essential topic in my view.
0: yeah, sometimes I feel like that end of history analysis is correct. I hate that. But sometimes I do feel like that. And then other times I feel like, no, I mean, we're only talking about a window that started with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s or arguably Jimmy Carter. Yeah. And then has lasted until now. So if we're really only talking about, you know, 1975 ish until now, it's kind of arrogant to think like. It'll stay like that forever. You know yeah,
1: what I'm saying? Yeah, it is. I mean, the thing that, like, the sort of parable that I come back to that gives me hope is if you look at the unionization landscape and the corporate power landscape, you would say the Amazon Union Drive was impossible. Like, you would look at it and you'd be like, similar to what you said, like, permanent capital, so entrenched, union busting is basically the law of the land. This is how things are and it can never change. And then I don't know where it did. So, you know, I, I think we're in this strange interregnum period where good word the um, failures, uh, neoliberalism has completely failed. It's like bereft of any content as a political project. Even the people who are propping it up basically operate knowing that that is the case. And yet they still have power. You know the. um, I think you're right to point out that the right wing movement that would replace that is not really any different. It just has a lot of different aesthetics and also, and you know, upping the ante on the authoritarianism. Um, So anyway, that's why I'm sort of endlessly fascinated by this question of where we are and where we're going and what it all means. And I do think that part that we're talking about at the end, the media piece of this, is an important part that I need to intellectually explore a little bit more because it does seem to me. You know, the story of the 2020 Democratic primary, for example, was basically a story of the media deciding Joe Biden was going to be their guy, deciding they were going to kneecap Bernie Sanders and then making that so. And while I think the media still has more purchase on the Democratic side of the aisle because there's been less of a concerted effort to, you know, persuade Democrats like the media is your enemy and they're lying to you and whatever, they have fallen flat in a lot of ways with Republicans. The whole landscape is fracturing. It's, you know, completely transforming before our eyes and it's a real open question to me what that is going to look like and exactly what it's going to mean.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the most likely scenario is the dynamic we see right now perpetuated and heightened. So, yeah, the the majority of corporate media are basically supporters of so-called centrist Democrats. Mm-hmm. That's what they are. You know, they're the, yeah. the Bettos, the Mayor Peets, the Kamala's, the, the Biden's. Sometimes it's very hard to you know, put lipstick on the pig, if you will, but they'll usually default to that. And Of course, I'm talking about CNN, MSNBC, and then you had the nightly news in there, so like ABC, CBS, et cetera. Um, I think the most likely scenario is they will continue to try to prop them up. Fox News, of course, will continue to try to prop up the Republican Party and, and Trumpism, and then alternate media, alternative media to, to one extent or another, yeah, the more outsider candidates are the ones who get more pull in new media. But then, you, you know, you're also up against algorithms that are very unkind to you, and you're up against pretty open um, censorship and deplatforming. Yeah. Um, so it, it's certainly an uphill battle. There's no doubt about that. Well,
1: I do think that that's, that's a really important part of the conversation is like, okay, so the corporate media gatekeepers may be losing their grip. And have a sort of, you know, I mean, they still have a lot of power, I don't want to downplay it, but it's sort of a zombie project because the eyeballs are falling away, the business model makes less and less sense as the eyeballs fall away and advertising is worth less and less. So you have those gatekeepers diminishing in importance. But now you have new gatekeepers that are more and more important, and those are, you know, the people who control the YouTube algorithm and the people and all the other algorithm, Facebook and um, and Twitter and all the other uh, algorithmic decisions and overt censorship decisions, and that's sort of the new way of controlling the acceptable window of conversation.
0: Yeah, I think that's definitely true, um, and that's actually a great note to end on. Guys, help us defeat the algorithm. Yes,
1: indeed. <laughs> so
0: everybody, um, you know. Support us on Substack if you can. Thank you to everybody who already does support us on Substack. You pay $5 a month and you get the videos of all the Crystal Kyle and Friends podcasts and you get them a day early. Um, and then everybody else, if you want to listen, you can listen for free as well, just on the podcasting apps like a day later on, on Saturdays. But uh, thank you so much to everybody who does support this show, remember, we don't, we've never had a conversation with an advertiser. We never will have a conversation with an advertiser and that's only possible because of your guys' support. So it really uh, means the world to us. And then, yeah, I mean, if you happen to be watching this, you know, on YouTube and just, or any of the videos that we put out on YouTube, like, subscribe, all that fun stuff, because like I said, tough to beat that algorithm, so trying to get to that million subscriber mark, but man, it's like climbing Mount Everest at this point with no oxygen.
1: (laughs) You get there. I still believe. I still believe. Well, next election cycle, maybe. Who knows? Yeah, there you go.
0: All right, love you guys. We'll talk to you soon.